It'd be great to uh, keep your Bibles open. Uh, it's a difficult passage. It's hard to understand. Uh, a lot of it feels very unfamiliar if you haven't read it before. So let's pray that God speaks to us today. Dear Lord, uh, we do thank you that you give us your word and that you speak to us. Uh, Lord, as we read a difficult passage today, I pray that I will uh, proclaim it faithfully, uh, that I will tell your truth clearly. And Lord, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, uh, you will help us to hear the things that we need to hear. Amen. Israel Folau is, the, uh, is a rugby union player uh, playing for Australia. Uh, he's also uh, one of the highest paid rugby union players and a Christian. Uh, about a month ago, uh, he put this picture up on Instagram. Uh, which has now become quite infamous because uh, in response to that picture, uh, someone asked him, uh, one of the the followers on Instagram, asked him, what is God's plan for gay people? And he replied, hell, unless they repent of their sins and turn to God. Now, unsurprisingly, uh, there was outrage. Uh, So people wanted to see uh, Israel uh, sanctioned for his views. Others wanted to see him sacked altogether. Uh, Some wanted to see Qantas, who are the major sponsor of Australian Rugby Union, withdraw their sponsorship. But if someone had asked a similar question, so perhaps if someone had asked, what is God's plan for promiscuous heterosexual women on Tinder the answer would have been the same. Hell, unless they repent of their sins and turn to God. And if someone had asked the question of a loving father of two with a pet Labrador called Trevor, (laughs) who is a top bloke but has no interest in God or love for him, then the answer would have been the same. Hell, unless he repents of his sins and turns to God. And none of those answers would have done anything to appease the public outrage that was vented on Christians. Because what right does anyone have to shame any of my behaviour? What right do Christians have to make me feel bad about myself or make me feel less secure before God? In fact, almost the only sin left in our culture is to call something sin. And so very quickly we hear labels like offensive, regressive, harmful, extreme, bizarre and ignorant. But if we genuinely love God, if we genuinely believe that God speaks through his word, the Bible, then we will live in submission to his will and we will love being obedient to him. And if we don't recognize God, if we don't recognize God's word as God's word to us, then we will choose to live our own life and to stand Uh, on our own two feet independently. We don't want God telling us what to do. And God warns us, if that is our choice, if that is where we choose to stand, 
then there are consequences. And we will see that very graphically as we read this book of Micah. That God has spoken to his people clearly, but they refuse to listen. And so now God will bring justice and judgment. We've titled uh, this series Covenant Love because God has set Israel apart as his chosen people. And a covenant is simply a promise. So he's made a promise to them uh, that he will bless them and through them all the nations of the world will be blessed. But with that covenant comes responsibility. So this is how it's expressed in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So as we read the Old Testament, we see God being faithful to that covenant. And sometimes he is faithful through blessing them when they are obedient. And sometimes he is faithful to that covenant as he disciplines them and judges them. But God will fulfill his plans. God will be faithful even when Israel are faithless. I think uh, one of the common mistakes that we often make when we read the Old Testament is we, we jump in and we think it's just all about us. And so we start reading us straight into the story. But as we read the Old Testament, we've got to remember that first and foremost, it's actually God speaking to the people uh, during that time, during those events. And then we learn from that as we observe that, we come to understand the nature of God and the nature of humanity and the nature of ourselves. So let me begin as we look at this book of Micah by placing it in its historical context. And I want to do this as a little bit of a tribute to the, the Sunday school teachers uh, and those who were attending Sunday school uh, in the 70s and the 80s. Because we've got a bit of a flannel graph going. Okay, for those who love flannel, uh, good memories, good times. Okay, let me tell you the story uh, in, in my flannel graph pictures. Okay, so it starts with Abraham. Uh, Abraham, I had to start right on the left-hand side. I don't have a lot of room to work with. So Abraham is, is promised by God that he will be blessed, that he'll be a blessing to all nations. At the time he's old, he has no children, he's past uh, child-rearing age, but God is faithful and gives him one son. They're off and running. Uh, Isaac then has two sons. Uh, one of them is Jacob. Unfortunately, Jacob has a growth mindset uh, because he has 12 sons and one daughter. And uh, after there is a great famine 
in their country. And thanks to Joseph, who they sent into slavery, bad move, but God meant it for good, they end up in Egypt. Uh, From being a relatively small family, uh, they're there for 400 years. And the good news is they become a huge family. Uh, The bad news is they become a slave nation. And then God sends Moses. And so Moses leads them out of Egypt. And after 40 years of of wandering in the desert and a whole lot of complaining, uh, God gives them the land he has promised. There it is. Uh, Once they're in the land, uh, and and as they travel to the land, God continues to, to make this warning to them. He says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will punish you. And so they go into the land understanding very clearly about what God expects for them. When they get there, they want a king like the nations around them. And this really is a slap in the face to God, who is their king. But if they're going to have a king, uh, then they will rule under God's rule. And so we started off with Saul, uh, who was an impressive figure. Uh, He stood out amongst his peers, uh, but he didn't obey God. And in the end, he becomes insanely jealous and paranoid and ends up dying on his own spear. Uh, Then we have David, uh, who does love God, deeply flawed, but loves God. Uh, And then we go on to his son, Solomon, who was known for his wisdom Uh, but very unwisely later in life married a whole stack of pagan women who led him astray and the nation astray. After that, things get really bad. So after that, uh, there is a civil war and the whole nation gets split in two. So we've got 10 tribes in the north that continue to be called Israel and sometimes Samaria and a few other names. And then we've got Judah, which is two tribes in the south. Now, the north uh, want more land than they've got, so they keep trying to invade Judah and take over the rest of them. Judah make an alliance with the world power of the day, Assyria, and Israel are wiped out, never to recover. If I could have done more wiping out, I would have, but that's the best I had. But you get the picture, it's a bad ending for the north, never to recover their Jewish identity. Uh, The south, on the other hand, continue for a while longer uh, until finally a bigger fish than the Assyrians come along uh, called the Babylonians and they send Judah into exile. Uh, Fortunately, out of that, uh, a small remnant will return. So they're described like, like a shoot out of the stump of a tree that's been chopped down. So a long way from the glory days of David. So there you go. That's all very simple. There's a lot of pages in the Bible, but all you need is really just one flannel graph. Uh, I've left out an awful lot of detail, but hopefully it brings us to the point of, of where we stand in Micah. So Micah is right on the brink of Assyria wiping out the north and the kingdom is split. And so he's from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he speaks, he speaks to both, but mostly to the south. So Micah 1.1 1, 1 
starts with these words, if you want to read them with me. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So again, the short version, uh, Jotham was a good king and bad. Uh, He loved God, but he didn't remove all the foreign idols and worship in the land. Ahaz, on the other hand, was completely contemptible. So this is how two kings describes him. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. Engaging in detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And then after him comes Hezekiah, and he's a very different man to his father. So he listens to the Lord, and when he hears the prophets declare judgment, he listens and he repents. So our passage today begins with that context, and it begins with God bearing witness against Samaria and Judah. So Micah 1, 2, hear you people, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So God has seen the sin of Israel and Judah and he now comes in fearsome judgment. But this isn't just for Judah and Israel. He calls all the world to listen, for all the world to observe what is about to happen here. Because God isn't just the God of Israel and Judah, and he's not just the God of Christians. There is one true living God. And all of us will stand before God, whether we recognize him or not. And the last thing we want to do is stand before him with him witnessing against us and witnessing uh, our condemnation. So as observers of these proceedings, it would make sense, wouldn't it, to to listen to what happens and make sure that we don't go the same way. So here's the charge in verse 7, and it's against Samaria. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burnt with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. So the northern kingdom has adopted the gods of the nations around them and Judah to the south have followed in their footsteps. So Micah 1.5, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? So the high places are often used positively, but mostly negatively to describe the foreign worship places uh, around uh, the country. And under Jotham, Uh, They were out in in the countryside, in the towns. But under Ahaz, he literally brings the Assyrian gods into the temple. So he makes a new altar to the Assyrian gods. And instead of making offerings to the God of Israel, he makes offerings to the gods and the idols of Assyria. So if you can imagine coming home in the middle of the day and walking past your neighbours... And then having sex with a prostitute in front of your spouse, 
That, that's roughly where we are now. Okay, if you're a little bit repulsed by that, you should be. Um, that that is how brazen and contemptible Ahaz is. That he would come right into the heart of Jerusalem and worship other gods. And the wages of prostitutes are probably literal, uh, but also metaphoric. And so we often see uh, that as part of foreign worship, uh, the, the prostitutes were, were part of that, the temple uh, worship together. But in Numbers it also says, Remember all the commandments of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to God. Our culture has become increasingly disconnected from our Christian heritage, hasn't it? So we've had a massive shift in values. We've normalised things like pornography and infidelity and promiscuity. We celebrate apps like Tinder and we hold them up to be an expression of sexual freedom. And at the same time, we ignore the impact it has on both our personal well-being and our relationships with each other. The technology might have changed, but, but lust hasn't changed. There's nothing new in lust. The feelings are real and they're powerful, but as God's people, they are called to be different. They are called to be holy. And as Christians, as God's people, we are called to be different and we are called to be holy. But this Numbers passage is also warning against our lust for wealth and success and prestige. As our eyes covet what we do not have and become seduced by the world around us. So we don't necessarily feel we need to be, you know, have everything in the world. It doesn't need to be of global significance. It just needs to be better than the person next door. Just enough to satisfy our need for comfort and pleasure, which of course we deserve, and enough to gain the respect of the people around us. And what's consumed Samaria has now taken hold in Judah. So Micah 1.9, For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah, it has reached the very gates of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. The enemy at the gate is not the military power of Judah as they seek to take over the south. It's not even the political power of Assyria as they demand tribute from the nations around them. The enemy at the gate here is idolatry. So whether we worship a stick or our possessions or experiences or respect, they all seek to replace God. And God is very clear. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so as a result of their unfaithfulness, God is bringing judgment on Judah and Samaria. And Micah mourns bitterly, doesn't he? You know, verse 8, Because of this I will weep and wail. 
I'll go about barefoot and naked. I'll howl like a jackal and mourn like an and moan like an owl. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? He feels the anguish. He sees the sin and he mourns what is going to happen. And from here, uh, from verse 10 to the, to the end of the chapter, we have these 10 towns. And actually, they're a play on words. Uh, so each of the words sounds similar to another Hebrew word. So, for example, Gath sounds like tell. And Micah says, do not tell this pagan town of Gath about God's judgment. Shafir sounds like beautiful, but now she'll pass by naked and ashamed. Marishah sounds like possession, and she will be possessed by someone else. You get the picture. Now, each of these towns is a tragic play on words. It's a declaration of impending judgment. And it builds this fearful anticipation of what God will do next. But Micah saves the worst for last. Verse 16, shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. A time is coming when their children will be conquered and go into exile. This isn't just about describing the pains of war. This is about describing the end of a nation and a return to slavery. Everything that God has done from Exodus forward looks like it is about to come to an end. When God declares his judgment, it sounds inevitable. And we look at this and we go, yeah, is God fair? And there's no ifs, buts or caveats, is there? It's just this is what will happen. But there is hope. So Judah deserves to be judged by God. Their sin is beyond dispute. And yet, God will forgive them if they repent and turn back to him. And that's what happened under, the, under King Hezekiah. So in Jeremiah it says, Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favour? And did not the Lord relent? so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them. In that generation, they heard God's judgment and they repented and changed. Tragically, we know it didn't last and the next generation, the one after them, will go into exile. But in this moment... God shows his grace and mercy. I think the problem in our context, so we like the idea of God showing grace, but I think today we think it's no longer grace, it's actually our right. If there is a God, he should show us grace. He should be unconditional in his love. It doesn't matter what I do or how I live or how much contempt I have for him. I should live a good, healthy, blessed life. In fact, it would be immoral if God was so petty as to judge me for my tiny little transgressions. 
Because when it comes to our culture, unconditional love equals unconditional endorsement. God does love us. He created us. He wants a relationship with us. But his love includes his holiness and it includes his justice. So let me give you an ethical dilemma. Okay, it might take more imagination uh, for others, uh, for some than others. But you have a 17-year-old son uh, who's recently uh, got his P licence. He's gone out uh, in the car to a party. Uh, At the party, uh, he has drunk uh, alcohol. He's drunk too much. And as he drives home, he hits a pedestrian. And he doesn't stop. He comes home and he's absolutely distraught about what he has done. Now, if we believe in love, but not justice, then we will cover up what he has done. If it's all about unconditional love, then we will protect him from the consequences of his actions. But I think most of us would agree, hopefully, that the morally right thing to do is to take our son down to the police station and confess his crime and bear whatever consequences come out of that. That's the morally right thing to do. I think we agree with that. But it's a good picture, isn't it, of both love but also a desire for justice. We don't want one without the other. In fact, love becomes awfully ugly when we remove right and wrong and goodness and justice. And that's what God does for us. God loves us, but he is also holy and he is also just. We all deserve to go to hell. Not because of our uh, sexuality or promiscuity or our morals, but all of those are pretty strong indicators, aren't they, of, of where our heart lies. But the heart is the heart of the problem because our heart so often lies a long way from God. We so often love the created things, just not the creator. So this is Paul's assessment of humanity, which we read this morning. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Fortunately, God has a solution. He has a solution uh, for loving us and for justice, and it doesn't involve us going to hell. And the offer is simple. If we repent of our sin and put our trust in him as God, if we desire to live in obedience to him, not perfectly, but as works in progress, repenting when we fail, if we do that, then God will forgive us. And he will allow his own son to bear the consequences of our choices and our attitudes. He will bear the punishment that we deserve. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But with that offer comes a need to respond. 
God loves us. He wants us to come back. But we are called to then love him. And we're called to live in obedience to him. And obedience is good. God doesn't make us obey his commands because he is spiteful. He says, this is how you thrive as a human being. This is how you thrive with each other. This is how you thrive with me. I want your good, not your bad. Israel and Judah have been seduced by the nations around them. They did exactly what God told them not to do. And now God is standing as a witness against them. The opening charge here is idolatry. They've worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator. And so as we feel the weight of what's happening to Judah and Israel, let's heed the warning and avoid making the same mistakes. Micah is about morality. The way we live matters. But most significantly, it's about the heart. Who do you love? What do you love? And how does that play out each day in our lives? Let me pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you help us to recognise and hate our sin. Lord, at the same time, I pray that you help us to recognise your love for us and your desire to forgive us and to restore us into a relationship with you. Lord, I pray as we've heard your word today uh, that it does not uh, go away empty, uh, but by your Holy Spirit, you convince us of what we need to hear. Amen.